Well, good morning. If you are new or visiting, my name is Luke, one of the pastors here at Carson Valley Bible Church. And it is my joy and privilege to be able to continue our study in the book of Genesis, that very first book of the Bible we as a church have been simply walking through since the beginning of this year. And today we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, which will be on page 11, if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles in front of you. And once again, we're actually going to look at the entirety of the chapter. And the reason that we're doing that is that that chapter and the way that the chapters came later, those are not inspired. But the way that chapters have been organized in the Bible is usually to try to encapsulate the big ideas of what's going on in a particular moment. And that's what we're going to look at in Genesis 16 is another snapshot into the life of this man named Abram that we met back in chapter 12, this figure who has entered into this relationship with God himself. And when God came to Abraham, he, he gave him a lot of promises. Promises to make his name great. Promises to give him an heir that would bless the world. Promise that he would have this land, this promise. And over the last few weeks, as we've been walking through Abram's life, we have seen kind of a roller coaster of faithfulness from Abram. Right? A roller coaster of some good things and some bad things. If you recall, it didn't start off super well after the promises were given to him. He then left the promised land and went to Egypt. And in doing so, he actually deserted his wife. Not a good thing. He returned to the promised land. Then we see a lot of faithfulness from Abram, wanting to trust God. God, you are believable. You are good. I can trust you despite my circumstances. And then last week in Genesis 15, we saw a wonderful covenant ceremony between God and Abram, where God showed his trustworthiness to Abram for all time. And we have remarked, church, as we've been going through this study, and specifically with Abram, we're really no different than he. We, just like him, have kind of a roller coaster of faithfulness at times. A roller coaster of trusting that God is good, trusting what he said is good, and then going, ah, I think I actually might have a better plan for my life. I can go a different direction because although God is good, maybe I can figure things out on my own a little bit. And we have done that. Even after becoming believers in Christ, which I know many of you are this morning, where even after you've come to faith in Christ, right, believed in what Jesus did on the cross, counted for you, believed that he rose from the grave, you have still failed to trust him at times, haven't you? Like Glenn mentioned earlier in our time of confession, we have all fallen short. Even after we've become Christians, we have failed to trust him and his good design. We have failed to believe that he knows all things. We have failed to remember that our identity is secure in him. That we don't have to look for things like our work or our family or our reputations to be any kind of sense of security or joy for us. That our identity, who we are, is secure in Christ alone. 
But as we will see today, even amidst really another failure of Abram's part, God remains faithful to his promise again, remains faithful to his people, and he continually meets us exactly where we're at, church. See, God's faithfulness is not dependent on, hey, you get 90% of the way way there, and then I'll meet you. So if you clean up your life, then I'll be there. No, even in the midst of great sin, great rebellion, often that is when we see God most clearly going, come to me, remember me, trust me. And we will see that in Abram this morning again, I believe. But let me go ahead and stop there one more time. And I want to just pray. I want to pray for you. And as I do that, will you just pray for me? And then I'll read Genesis 16 for us. But let's go to the Lord together. Father, as we just take a, another moment, Lord, just to come to your throne of grace, I'm, I'm once again reminded of how dependent I'm on you for all things, that this is your word. Your word is power. It has the ability to, to reveal exactly who you are to the depths of who we are. So God, I pray Lord, for your spirit to just illuminate the text. Allow us to clearly see what you've designed for us to see this morning. God, I also pray for our kiddos next door and the teachers that are leading them. God, will you give those teachers wisdom in order to rightly teach just the wonderful truths about who you are, God, to them. As well as, God, I I pray that you would save even the littlest hearts that are in this building today. And God, for anybody that does not know you yet, that you would draw them to yourself this morning for your glory and our joy. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 16. Let me just go ahead and just read it through for us. You can follow along in your Bible or Scripture journals or the screens. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, 
because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. We're thankful for God's word. That's why we say that. Now, what I would like to do with today's sermon is, once again, kind of break it up into three scenes that I want us to focus in on. Scene one is verses one through six, which I believe we actually, is a return to the Garden of Eden in some ways. But it's not a good return. Scene two, verses seven through 14, is a response of God that will affect all of us. And in verses 15 through 16, we see a culmination, really, of the whole story in all the verses prior. But yet, once again, we'll consider Genesis 16 in light of where the New Testament speaks of this passage. But going back to the beginning of verse 16, let's consider what we just read. Abram had been promised an heir, right? We've been talking about that for the last several weeks, Right? A promise that his own son was going to carry forward the promises of God. But there has been a problem, hasn't there? The problem is that his wife is barren. She can't have kids. This has always been the case. We actually knew about this back in Genesis chapter 11 before we even met Abram. But what happens? Well, over the years of waiting right, for Sarai to get pregnant... Sarai decides that God is not moving fast enough to his promises. Maybe I can speed things up a little bit. But before we look at this alternative plan of Abram and Hagar, which I'm sure you're excited for me to talk about, notice in verse 2, I want to point out something in verse 2. When Sarai mentions... That the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Who is, according to Sarai, why is she not able to have kids? Is it because of her old age? Is it because of some other kind of physical factors? No, she rightly says, God and his sovereignty has actually prevented me from having kids. Sarai understands that God is sovereign over everything, including the womb. Which I wanted to take a moment and reflect that that's very true and accurate from Sarai, but also one of the most important attributes of God that I think we have to understand that God is sovereign over this world. It's one of the most important things for us to know about God. Now, just as Justin quoted the late R.C. Sproul in his responsive psalm reading, I, too, want to quote R.C. Sproul, which is always interesting. Justin and I do a lot of things very similarly. We always show up at the same place, wearing the same clothes. It's great. We quote the same theologians on Sunday. We're going with it. But let me show you this quote from R.C. Sproul about the sovereignty of God. He says, if things happen in this world outside the sovereignty of God, then that would simply mean God is not sovereign. 
If God is not sovereign, God is not God. You see, if God is not sovereign, that means that there's things that he is not in control of. And if God is not in control of all things, then he is not all-powerful. Therefore, he is not God. See, the sovereignty of God is an area we always can plumb the depths of, always be growing. And is, is he in control over this in my life? He is. He is. And if, and if he is in control of it, and if he is good, then he can be trusted, as we will see in the coming verses. So at the root of Sarai's struggle, then, is her struggle to actually trust God and his timing. She understands who God is. She's just struggling to trust his timing, maybe his goodness. And so she comes up with this plan, right, to give her husband this opportunity to to have this relationship with this Egyptian servant that's in the household. Now, if you recall, where did these Egyptian servants come from? They came back from Genesis chapter 12, when Abram and Sarai went down to Egypt. And the servant, we're told her name is Hagar, and Sarai gives Abram Hagar so that he would sleep with her and that Hagar would become pregnant and basically serve as this surrogate for the family line of Abram and Sarai. Now, this seems strange to us a little bit, right? But in the near ancient world, this would have been a very common practice. You can read about this in in near ancient literature and and the laws like the Hammurabi Code. That this was a very common practice in this world. So it would have been normal and very lawful. But we should take special notice though, church, especially in our own age, that just because it's right in the eyes of culture, right in the eyes of of the, the land does not mean it's right in the eyes of God. The union between one man and one woman was given at creation. It became, came before anything else. And it's good. And it's actually a perfect design because it came from God himself. We saw that back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So God's good and perfect design for marriage does lead to flourishing and human intimacy. And over and over again, church, throughout Scripture, we see when humanity rebels against God's good design for human intimacy, it does not go well. It does not go well. Even in our culture today, right, we like to think that, you know, we're, we're pretty smart, right, we're pretty advanced, we have even moved beyond right, some of these archaic relationship parameters, and we're off to better things. But really, as we look at Genesis 16, we're just repeating the same mistakes that have been repeated for a long time. We're repeating the same sinful behavior. And what's at the root of it? It's rejection of who God is and his goodness, right? It's a rejection of his sovereignty. And the consequences now, as in then, are destructive and hurtful. But church, if God is who he says he is, if he is God, if he is good, no matter what our culture says or the law of the land says, we can trust him. And we're going to need to trust him as we 
live in a world in which God has sovereignly placed us in, a culture in which he's placed us in. They go, do you trust me here? You maybe trust me where you live, trust me with finances, trust me with your health, but you, do you trust me in the bedroom? It's something that we need to ask. But going back to the text, I want to point out a couple of things, because I mentioned that verses 1 through 6 are really a return to the garden in some ways, the return to the Garden of Eve. And let me point out to you some, some language that I believe Moses, who's the author of Genesis, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses intentionally to remind us of what humanity is doing. It's not something new, but actually something old and from the beginning. Notice at the end of verse 2, what does it say? It says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now that particular verb construction in the Hebrew is actually something we've seen before. We saw it back in Genesis 3.17. When God was laying out the consequences of sin, right? After Adam and Eve had fallen into sin and God's addressing them, he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. Furthermore, in verse 3, we see parallel language again, where Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram, is reminiscent of what in the garden? When Eve took of the forbidden fruit and gave it to Adam. Do you guys see the parallelism there? Right? This common language. Moses is trying to draw the readers back to the garden and saying sin is still affecting us all. Now, before you get mad at me or misunderstand me or the Bible, I'm not saying that a husband should not ever listen to his wife. Okay? For those of you who know my wife, you know that she's a lot smarter than I am. I, 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 can, I should listen to her for a lot of things, and rightly so. I don't think, when the, when the scriptures talk about you listen to your wife, it's not saying that you can't glean from the wisdom of your spouse. But here's what we see in both the beginning of Genesis 3, but also here in Genesis 16. What's pointing out is there is a tendency of men to fail to uphold the promises of God inside their marriage. And even when your most trusted person, right, which is oftentimes your spouse, even when the most trusted person in your life wants to take action that moves you away from the promises of God, what is your role as a husband? Well, your role on behalf of your wife and your family is to lead them not away from God's promises, but into a deeper trust into who he is and what he has promised and that he is good. So don't, don't throw blanket statements that we can't listen to our wives. I'm just saying, even if those who are the closest to you want to depart from who God is, you have a role and responsibility to lead them into greater trust of who God is. But what happens here? Abram doesn't do that, does he? In Abram's failure of leadership here, everything kind of goes a rock, right? Everything's a mess. Hagar is prideful and looking 
at contempt to Sarai. Sarai is upset with Abram. And Abram has sinned now against everybody involved, including God himself. It's, just, it's a mess, right? Nobody looks good in this chapter right now. In the results, Sarai deals harshly with Hagar. We don't know exactly what that means. That was physical, right? Emotional, verbal, we don't know. But whatever it was, it caused Hagar to flee into the wilderness, to leave, which would have been likely a death sentence for her and for the baby in her womb. But God, church, but God, just like in the garden when death was knocking at the door, what do we see? We see God speak. We see God enter into the picture and go, death is not the victor here. And so he speaks. So here's scene number two. God responds, starting in verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now really quickly, before we look at what happens in this conversation, I need to uh, pause and, and fill you in on maybe a, a theological concept that's introduced here. Because what we see is the language of the angel of the Lord found her, not an angel of the Lord has found her. Now, some believe that there's a big difference there between the angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord. Many scholars believe that the angel of the Lord, that messenger of God, is none other than actually the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. Another Christophany of sorts, where he is present and talking. Now, I think that this, there's good reason that this actually could be the case. Because if you look at the language of the conversation that happens, you'll notice the actual authority in which the angel of the Lord speaks on. He speaks and gives promises in verse 11, doesn't he? Who can give promises? Well, God himself can. Additionally, we see over in verse 13, Hagar calls the place that, that this all happened is the place where the Lord spoke to her. And that she has been seen by him who looks after me. But we also see in, in some ways that the angel of the Lord also speaks to the supremacy of God himself too. Now, I don't think we need to debate of, is this the second person of the Trinity or not? I think really what we need to do is focus in on, well, what, what happens? What is said? Because that's really the point of which Moses is trying to get to. About what does God actually say here in his word? Now, Kevin DeYoung, he's a, he's a pastor theologian who I've learned a lot from. And, and he pointed this out to me about the language or even the personalness that the angel of the Lord has with Hagar. Because when both Sarai and Abram were talking about Hagar, notice in verses 1 through 6, they actually never used her name. They referred to her as the servants. Never actually said her name. But what does God do here in verse 7? He calls her by her name. Hagar, giving her dignity and value as a person. God knows names, church. He knows every single name. 
And then there's two questions that are then given to Hagar by the angel of the Lord. And what are they? First is, where have you come from and where are you going? Now remember, God is completely sovereign, right? He knows all things. He's not asking these questions because he doesn't know, right? That's not what's going on here. Rather, I think he's setting the stage, in fact, of how he is actually going to answer these questions for Hagar in the coming verses. So he tells her that she needs to return to Sarai, that he has a plan for her and for the baby in her womb. And you notice even the plan that's given to Hagar, it sounds actually very similar to the promise given to Abram, though it's different. And then we see the angel of the Lord tell Hagar that this baby in her womb will be called what? Ishmael. And in verse 12, we see that the son will have a future, one marked by struggle. Now, if someone were to say that your son will resemble a donkey, I don't know if that's a good thing for them. Certainly it would sound like an insult to me. But what we see throughout this is, is God is saying, no, but there is a plan for him. A plan that I know of. A plan that I'm sovereign of for him in the same way I'm sovereign over you. Now, I don't have time to trace the history of Ishmael here today. We're actually going to see that in the coming weeks. So if you're really curious about Ishmael and his family history, hold on. Hold on. But looking back at verse 11, you probably have a, a little number subscript next to the name Ishmael. Do you guys have that in your Bibles? That's an important one to look up, because what does the name Ishmael mean? God hears. God hears. That's what the name Ishmael means. Which really is exactly what this whole story has been pointing to, hasn't it? That God knows, that he hears, that he's not absent from the affliction of this world. He actually knows all of it. Knows all of it perfectly, not knows what just has been said out loud, but also what's been said internally. He knows it all. And imagine how Hagar must have felt about this, right? This Egyptian servant has no power, no dignity given to her by her masters, it seems like. But yet she is told that God hears her, the least and the lost. Or think about the original audience. When Moses was first telling this story, right, to a bunch of former Egyptian slaves themselves after being freed, right, during the time of the Exodus, on their way to the promised land, they are also hearing that, you mean you're telling me, Moses, that even when we're in the wilderness, God hears us? Yeah, he hears you. Or what about us today? Paul likens the Christian life now to that of a new exodus, where we have been freed from the bondage of slavery and sin, and yet we have not reached our final destination yet, have we? We are in our the own wilderness, so to speak, and we should take heart knowing that in the wilderness, God hears. He hears. And we have confidence because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because what is strikingly absent from this story in Sarai is where are Sarai's prayers? There's nothing recorded. 
Now, why is that? Well, I think that's intentional because maybe, maybe she didn't pray at all about the situation. But what Moses indicates, and I think we should take notice of this, our prayer life, church, often reflects where our trust in the sovereignty of God is actually at. When you pray more, it's because you're trusting more. And if you're not praying, we should ask, is it because that you actually don't believe that God is good or sovereign over whatever is going on in your life? So we should be reflective of this. Because the God of the Bible is the God who hears and sees, church. And that is glorious. That should make us want to pray that he is good and he is in control. He's not a God who's distant. Right? He's not a God who's preoccupied with other things. Right? You can come to him for all things. God cares about the everyday realities of your life. He sees, he hears all things. And if that's true, we can go to him for what? All things. All things, church. Now, in verses 15 through 16, after the return of Hagar, what do we see? We see Abram, I believe, really step up. Have a moment of repentance over his sin. He takes ownership of his child, Ishmael. He names him, saying that he belongs to me. Every life matters in the economy of God. And he names him Ishmael, likely after what Hagar told him about what the angel of the Lord spoke. And we'll see a whole lot more about Ishmael and a relationship with Abram in the coming verses. But what I'd like to do to close our time is like we've been doing over the past couple of weeks is go from Genesis into the New Testament and really drop dead center right into our own lives going, but why, what is, should this matter to me? This story about some lady and some guy all these years ago. What does this matter to me? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he actually talks about Hagar and Sarah, or Sarai, in Galatians 4, when he's speaking to these, these new Christians, and he takes the story of these two women, and he allegorizes them, which I don't recommend you doing with the Old Testament, unless the New Testament does it. But what he does is he, he takes these two and says, these two women actually kind of represent two roads of life that every person has to choose whether they want to walk down or not. And so as he's speaking to the Christians in Galatia, he's saying, don't return to slavery. Don't return to trying to earn your way with God. And let me show you this. It's on the screen. Is, this is Galatians 4. And I'm just going to read a portion of it for our time this morning. But he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Hagar, and one by a free woman, that's Sarah, Sarai or Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. Now, I know this can be a little bit confusing, and I wish we had more time to walk through Galatians 4. We just don't. But 
what I believe, what Paul, why Paul picks up this story, these two women, is he knows that we're all tempted to choose to try to do things our own way. To go, you know, God, I know your promise. I know what you say about yourself. But I think I might have a better plan, or at least I could speed things up a little bit. And so what he's saying is that there's two, there's two roads. There's the road of the flesh of saying, I will take things into my own hands. And there's the road of promise saying, I'm still going to move. I'm still going to do things. I'm going to do it under the banner of the sovereignty of God and my trust in him. Because ultimately, as we will see in the coming weeks, Sarai does receive a son. She does bear a child. His name is Isaac. But Isaac didn't come into the picture because Sarai manipulated the situation enough to get a son. But rather, in God's goodness and in his timing, God provided a son to Abram and Sarah. It didn't come from taking matters into their own hands, but rather trusting and believing that God is good, including his timing. And the most important place then for us to remind ourselves or remember where can we trust God in? What's the most important place that we have to think about often? Our salvation, church. Our salvation. Because God not only sees or hears, but he also acts. Because what has God done for the assurance of our souls? Right? For the promise to us. He sent his son. He sent Jesus into this world as that ultimate heir. One that would live the life we couldn't live. One that would get on the cross and bear the the penalty for our sins. One that would then give us everlasting life. A promise that can never be taken away because it was done and completed by the works of another. In him we have salvation. And when it comes to salvation, Paul is saying, don't don't return back to slavery. Don't return back to the flesh of trying to do things your own way. God did not save you and say, all right, now go. Try to figure things out on your own. No, he says, what began in the Spirit will be completed by the Spirit. God doesn't just care about your salvation. He cares about everything from beginning to end. So what Paul is saying, he's connecting the dots. He's saying, don't return back to slavery. Don't return back to trying to do things your own way. Trust me, even in the moments where it doesn't seem like I have a plan, or it doesn't seem like I'm moving very fast, trust me. Trust me. Because if God can be trusted in our salvation church, where else can he be trusted? Yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. And as we live this life, may we do so by trusting. God, trusting his timing to fulfill his promises, not in our way, but in his way. And even when we doubt, right, because there will be seasons of doubt, there'll be days of doubt where we go, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know what you're up to here. I don't know what the plan is, what the timing is. Where can you return to? Where's the moment that we all have that we can return to and say, if this is true, then I know that God is for us cross. You can always return to the cross and go, I know that God is for us because of that moment in history. That's the moment where God's perfect love was on display, 
where his perfect sovereignty was on display. When God's goodness was on full display, church. And I pray that we'd be able to leave here believing that a little bit more than when we first walked in. What a gift that is. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Let's end there. Well, Father, as we end our time in your word, I'm thankful that we have promises made and promises kept. That, Lord, once again, we are reminded of your goodness. We are reminded that you can be trusted in all things, including the timing of our lives. 